You know our slogan around here is better practice, better life. But we're taking this belief to the next level. And we've recently announced the creation of a new association. It's called the Best Practices Association. Our association celebrates the mindset that is better practice, better life. This mindset celebrates time, healthy living, personal growth, clinical excellence, and impacting the lives of your patients and your team through intentional leadership. In fact, we are the work-life balance experts in dentistry. The BPA will coach independent dental practices like yours to thrive by sharing best practices and operational habits, behaviors, systems, tools, and insight that lead to profitability and sustained growth, and you can still have a life. So if you're a dentist that wants to surround yourself with great thinkers, let us help you create your own version of Better Practice, Better Life. Go to actdental.com forward slash BPA or hit the link in the show notes. Yo, yo, yo. Hey guys, welcome back to another awesome edition of the Best Practices Show podcast. You ever thought to yourself, how do I figure out this whole PPO landscape thing? It's becoming more and more complex. Well, we ask that question all the time. And we ask that question today to an amazing friend of the Act Dental community. Her name is Sandy Hudson. She runs a company called Unlock the PPO. And she's a straight shooter. Today, she shares with us some trends and current things you need to know about PPOs. Do not miss this. I know you guys will enjoy it. And we'll see you soon. Welcome back to the Best Practices Show podcast. You know the jam around here. My job is to bring the best experts in all of this noble profession to share information to help you create a better practice and a better life. And today I bring back one of my favorite of all time, Sandy Hudson, who has a great company called Unlock the PPO. And she's going to be sharing with us what's really going on in the world of PPOs and what you need to know as a dentist. So you're going to want to listen to this. So Sandy, thanks for being on. I really appreciate you. You bet. It's been a little while, so it's great to be back again. It's been a long while. Now, I'll say this about Sandy if you guys are listening. She's amazing. So Sandy, as coaches, we need coaching. And Sandy, for a long time, uh, helped us understand the PPO game and um, even did some work. We're going to talk about her services here in a little bit. She does work for our clients and helping them navigate this landscape. But if somebody's listening, Sandy, for the first time to the podcast, they've never heard who Sandy Hudson, who are you? What do you do? (laughs) Well, our company, um, we work kind of a niche little piece of dentistry even. Um, It's me and my partner's Uh, Lisa Weber. So it's the two of us and we have a great staff who support us, of course. Um, But Lisa handles all of our startup clients and then I work with all of our established practices. Um, And we what makes us a little different, I guess, is, excuse me, we only work with solo practices. So we're focused on um, one doctor, one location. Once you get into multiple doctors, multiple locations, that's outside the parameters that we work, mainly because I work directly with all my clients and so does Lisa. So instead of us having kind of like a big subset of consultants under us where we've kept 
to the smaller practice so that we can work with them directly. So that's what we do. And we basically just are looking to see what's your insurance participation now? Can we do any negotiations, move things around, get you paid better? And are there some things you might want to think about adding or dropping? So yeah. insurance strategy, basically. Yeah. So yeah. two more things. Um, I'll say this. If you're a multi-doctor practice or multi-location, please keep listening because you're going to learn a lot, even though Sandy's uh, services yeah. don't encompass what you do. But secondly, I love your story. Can you tell, how the heck did you get into this kind of work? Can you tell everybody your story a little bit? Well, sure. I usually start it by saying I made every mistake possible in the books and learned the hard way. So um, I'm married to a dentist, which I think you know. And so I was working in his practice and we had basically just moved to a new office space. So we had all this space to expand and we were crazy busy. And at the end of the year, I realized we just made the same amount of money as we made last year, only everybody was working twice as hard for it. So it was clear we needed to do something with our insurance participation differently. Um, so I was trying to find somebody to help me. I wasn't super well-versed in dentistry. I mean, I'd been working in it for several years, but as far as just actual contracting, I wasn't any kind of you know expert in that. So I was trying to find help and nobody was doing it. I mean, this has been now a dozen years ago. Um, so I just started posting, here's what I did, here's my mistakes, here's what worked, hope it helps somebody else. And then it just kind of turned into a little niche company, which then now it's an industry. You know, now there's right. lots and lots of, you know, it's become a, a whole industry in and of itself with insurance um, participation and negotiations and strategy. Um, but back then, just nobody was doing it. So learned a lot of lessons the hard way. Um, but, you know, it was hands-on, you know, frontline. I was the office manager working through it all myself. And so I think we come from a pretty good background of knowing things from the ground up of how this has now evolved and gone crazy the last few years. I mean, these shared network agreements have just gone nuts. So it's, um, I always tell dentists, whatever you signed, you know, 10 years ago is just no longer what you're getting. It's just a completely different thing that you're getting with all of your participation than what you originally agreed to. So you need to kind of be the one to take control of that instead of just letting the insurance companies make those decisions for you. So it's evolved a lot since those days, but that's how we originally got into it. Yeah. And I could easily make this a three hour podcast because I have so many questions. And so we may, <laughs> I'm going to volunteer you Hi. back for, for additional episodes, but uh, <laughs> I, I was emailing you yesterday and we were emailing, like, what do we, what, what do you want to cover today? Let's start here, the state of the union. And you said kind of the perfect lead in would be the trends in fee for yeah. service. Can you explain that? Yeah. yeah. So um, until recently, I'd say the last couple of years, you know, most offices complained about their PPO fees, but they didn't necessarily make drastic changes with them. Even if it was a crappy fee schedule, it was just seemed hard for them to completely let go of them a lot of times. And now I'm seeing far, far more offices dropping plans. Um, and my partner, Lisa, on the startup side is seeing startups become a lot more selective about what they take to start with. So. You know, it used to be that even if you didn't take very many PPOs, you always took Delta. That was just right. kind of the given. Lots of her startups are not even taking Delta now to, to open a brand new practice. Um, right. So we're starting to see, you know, new practices be more selective. On the established side, the big trend I'm seeing, and 
I feel dumb even saying it because I feel like dentists know this more than, you know, I can even, I don't need to be telling them this, I guess. Right. But after COVID, we saw, you know, things start rebounding in terms of here, patients are coming back, offices are getting busier. But now all of a sudden they're dealing with higher supplies. I mean, everything's gone up in price. But even more so, the staffing issue right now is just huge. Um, if you can find staff at all, if, if you have good staff, you're having to pay more to keep them. If you're trying to find new staff, that's impossible in a lot of areas, and particularly with hygienists. You know, we just had so many hygienists exit the industry with COVID and just choose not to come back at all, that there's a real shortage. So it can be months sometimes just to find a hygienist, um, you know, to work. So you've got that whole side, expenses are going up. And then now on the flip side, you've got PPO fees that are staying very stagnant. So most of the doctors I talk with are really, you know, in a place where they're like, now is the time. If I'm going to be changing my insurance contracting, whether I like it or not, there's not a choice anymore. I'm just not able to pay more to a hygienist than I'm getting from an insurance company for a profi. And a lot of dentists are telling me, really, they're supplementing. Um, you know, they're they're lowering their income in order to offset higher staff expenses that they need to pay for just to keep things going. So, you know, that's a tough deal. At some point, something's got to give with that. And so, I'm just seeing a lot more offices saying, at least these maybe bottom ones, we got to start somewhere. Let's start right. looking at these bottom payers. And let's figure out how we can get a game plan and at least start chipping away little by little. If, if you're not going to do anything drastic, which is often not the best case, you know, going from a heavy PPO practice to a fee for service practice overnight is not necessarily the recommended action for most offices. But how can we at least look to see what's working, what's not, and let's get some kind of game plan to get some action yeah. I'm so glad you said that because a lot of times people miss, they, they, they don't hear the information correctly. They're like, well, does that mean I got to go fee for service? No. Mm-hmm. And to your point, let's chip away at this and make sure that we have the right type of participation, whatever patient segments that we need as we grow mm-hmm. our practice, because hypothetically you could still participate throughout your entire career, but you're now the captain of the ship. You're deciding how to do that and things like that. And then also on the trends, now I, I shared this with you before we went live. We do a lot of education here. The average practice that writes off, the write-off percentage, I asked you, we heard is 42%. And I asked you, is that what you're seeing on your side? And you said what? Yeah, right on the money. I'd say that's a good, and there's a lot of variance, um, not because PP, it's not like one practice necessarily has better PPO fees than another in all cases. A lot of it is just, where do you have your cash fee set? So, you know, if you've got an $1,100 crown and your neighbor has a $1,600 crown, but you both have the same PPO fee schedule, one is going to look relatively better than the other. And so, a lot of it is, you know, where do you have your cash fee set? But I think, yes, if you've got your cash fee set in sort of that, let's say, 70th, 80th percentile range, kind of the sweet spot for most practices, then I would say, yeah, looking at a 40% write-off is what I would see in most cases. It's just an average. Yeah. And yeah. so we see the same trends as you. I'm so glad you said that. And too, we, we've heard also when it comes to fee-for-service practices, practices that have gone that the distance and have 
decided to be paid full fee is also rising. So it went somewhere in the 8% to about 13%. A lot of what you said, we had a lot of doctors during COVID go, no, this is the time. If there was ever a time to make a decision and you put all of these things together, um, here's one of my real questions. Like, how many people do you see move in that direction that fail? Because a lot of people think, well, I'm, my practice is going to die. Do you see that in, the, in any respect? No, we don't. And granted, with our, um, with our work, we're not working with clients for years and years at a time. So right. what we do is go in do all of the insurance analysis. They make their choices. We're usually working with most offices for a year, maybe a year and a half kind of range. Um, but yeah, it's not like we get offices that come back and say, oh my gosh, I have to jump back and network with all of these companies. And now I think part of that is because I tend to be um, a little more non-drastic with my approach as well, like to say, let's make this successful because look, if you're grossing, let's say, $800,000 a year and you've got a, one of these bottom payers and you're grossing $30,000 of production with them, you know, let's be real. If you drop that company and every single patient left, which is not going to happen, but let's just pretend it did, you're still in great shape. You're not, you're not jeopardizing, you're not risking your practice in any way. So there's ways that, you know, when you do this gradually and you start with something that you have no way not to be successful with it. I mean, right. you're going to, if you just clear out a few patients so you can get, you know, your hygiene patients in in four months instead of five months, you still come out ahead <laughs> because most right. practices are booking out so far on hygiene that just clearing the decks a little bit to be able to get in the higher paying patient is actually a good thing. And, you know, I think the hard part, I tell this to doctors all the time and I relate to it because, you know, I'm married to a dentist. We still have a dental practice. You spend all of these years going, how do we build this? How do we treat patients well? How do we keep them coming back? How do we give great patient service? And then you get to a point where you're too busy and it becomes really hard mentally, even when you see the numbers on paper that say, we actually are a little too busy. We can't get in a new patient for two months. Well, that's not doing anybody any good. Um, right. So you actually would be better off intentionally shrinking the practice just a little bit, but it's really hard to do that. You know, when you've spent all of these years wanting to build and never wanting a patient to leave, the thought that we could actually stand to lose a few patients to make the practice healthier, um, it's, it's a little hard of a, you know, kind of a mental shift to, yeah. to make. Yeah. That's not sexy though. That's not sexy in practice <laughs> growth and development. Nobody ever, I know. it's always I know. about, and I always tell people, you know, growing is always, it's always going to be an attractive that you're always going to want to grow professionally. Right. So, you know, size right. of your practice, it's, it'll never go away. And that's where you need the help of experts to help you navigate right. because you can grow right. something that you never wanted in the first right. place. Now right. I, I have so many questions. I want you to go back and explain. You used the word shared agreements. This is getting yes. weird now. Can you explain what that means from your side? Yes. And this is probably the bulk of the industry right now. So cut me off if I start going a little too long on this, because this is the piece. So let's say that you've got a direct contract. So the difference between a direct contract and a shared network agreement, just to give a kind of a quick overview so we all understand the terminology we're talking about. So a direct contract means you sign directly with the insurance company. So if you sign directly with Aetna or MetLife or Guardian or whoever it is, the, the upside to that is that it's going to be an easier way to participate. You sign directly with the insurance company. You know what you're getting. 
it will put you in network faster than if you go through a shared network agreement. So there are some definite advantages to direct contracts and all things being equal, I prefer direct contracts. If we can get a good direct contract, um, that's always our goal. But where the big dilemma has come in is all of these insurance companies now have made multiple shared network agreements with other companies. So really, Delta is the only one left that has no shared network agreements with anybody. If you want to be in network with Delta, you got one choice. You sign directly with Delta or you stay out of network. But there are no other avenues to participate with Delta. Pretty much everybody else has at least some of their networks that can come in through shared network agreements with other companies. So a shared network agreement is essentially that you're in network with that insurance company, but you're using somebody else's fee schedule. So as these insurance companies have to continue to just make more and more of these agreements, I mean, there's lots of them now that could have eight or 10 different shared network agreements. So one thing you have to be really careful about is understanding of your contracts, who has shared network agreements with who? Because otherwise, here's what happens. I just talked to somebody this week who said, yep, I I'm already bit the bullet. I already sent in my termination for company A. And I said, well, that's great. But the problem is, as soon as you get out of that contract with company A, well, company A has you know seven other shared network agreements with companies that you're in network with so as soon as you drop that you're going to get picked back up again by somebody else you're going to be back in network and you're going to get paid on somebody else's fee schedule so where this has become such the primary focus now of strategy is we can all guess how this works if you drop a direct contract because in most cases not all but most a direct contract is going to override everybody else so as long as you have that direct contract in place, they take priority. But as soon as you get out of that direct contract, then that's when the insurance company can attach to any other shared network agreement that you have in place. Now, the way this should have worked is it should have all been set up so that if there's a shared network agreement, they have to ask your permission to be added. Well, we can all laugh about that now because we know that's not the way it works. Right. It's you can opt out of most of those agreements, but the burden is on you to opt out. You automatically get opted in and you have to be the one to figure out how to opt out of those agreements because we can all already guess what happens. If you have a direct contract and you terminate it, you want that company to be picked back up again by the highest paying option, or maybe you want to stay completely out of network. Well, the insurance company has, no interest at all in paying you the highest option. If there is five contract options that they have to choose from, why do they want to attach to the highest option? They're going to want to attach to the lowest option. So if you just start randomly dropping things, thinking it's finally time to get out of some of these bottom ones, where you can have a really unpleasant surprise is all of a sudden you're back in network and now you're getting paid worse than you were originally because there's a lower paying shared network agreement that attached back on for you. So if you're not careful, you can actually go the wrong direction with some of this. So that's why before you actually make any changes, you want to go, okay, if I get out of this, what of my other contracts could pick that company back up again? And do I want them to pick up or not? And if not, then opt out of those agreements. Most of them you can. And when we say opt out, um, just to clarify, an opt out is different than a termination. So a termination means you're terminating the whole contract. 
An opt-out means you're keeping that contract in place, but you're saying, hey, like if you opt out of Aetna's agreement with Emeritus, what you're saying is, hey, Aetna, I want to keep my contract in place with you. I still want to be a contracted provider with Aetna, but I don't want you to allow Emeritus to attach to your fees. So those are two different pieces of this whole puzzle. So basically, you want to step back, map out everything ahead of time, and decide where you want to move things, get all that paperwork in place proactively before you start just randomly dropping things. Otherwise, pretty soon it's six months down the road and you're like, I, I dropped all this stuff and I'm not making any more money. What happened? Yeah. <laughs> so we don't want that happening either. Yeah. Sandy, I've been doing this for 25 years. Uh -huh. Number one, you just gave me chest pain. <laughs> Number two... <laughs> It's so confusing, like so confusing. So, and I almost think that's intelligent design because I don't know, I don't know heads or tails. And so our job here at the podcast is not to make you angry or anything. Our job is just to give you information and education. So if I'm in the middle of this, Sandy, you shared on a podcast a couple of years ago, the only way to know where you're at on this map is to regularly audit EOBs. Is that still mm -hmm. your advice at this point? It is just, you know, every six months or so, pull a handful of EOBs and look to see, am I getting paid the way I'm supposed to be getting paid? Because what'll happen is a lot of times when these shared network agreements are created, either number one, you don't get a notice or you got a notice, but just nobody caught it. Nobody realizes, does it mean anything to us? And so pretty soon they just start automatically downgrading and you don't even know that it's happening. So you definitely want to be spot checking EOBs on occasion and just going, hey, is this actually paying me the way I thought I was supposed to be paid? Or has something happened here that we weren't aware of? And how do we jump in and, you know, rectify that? Right. Okay. So I have so yeah. many other things that I want to ask. You know, years ago, you used yeah. to be able to negotiate too. If you were participating, yeah. you know, it was really nice because you could play well with them and right. say, hey, listen, I'm doing a lot here. Would you consider a new fee schedule? Where are we on the map as far as negotiating now? Uh, it's a little bit all over the place. Um, so we're still seeing negotiations with some companies. Um, and if they are doing a negotiation, what I tell offices today is like, I never recommend hiring us just for straight renegotiations, just because the strategies, the overall strategy side of things is kind of more overall encompassing. And that's where I would say a bigger value is in mapping out everything. But part of what we still do is request direct contract negotiations. I mean, we might as well see, let's get everybody's best offers on the table before you make any decisions anyway. So that's still part of what we do. Um, but if that's the only thing you want to do, if you're like, look, I'm not going to drop anything, I'm not going to change anything. The only thing I want to do is keep my current contracts in place and see if they'll give me more money. Then you're better off just reach out to the insurance companies directly, see what they come back with. But I tell offices in the market right now, if an insurance company negotiates, you're probably looking at three to 5%. I mean, this is not gonna be something that, you know, overwhelms you with, you know, crazy high increases. There are a couple of companies that have done pretty major decreases um, across the country in the past couple of years. So keep an eye on that. Um, there's a few that have, um, and I won't mention names, but I'm sure most of your listeners are pretty aware because there were some big ones that have been issued the past couple of years. And 
you know, you've really got to keep um, still requesting every two or three years. It, they're not going to do a request or look at it more than once every two years, sometimes once every three years now. So honestly, don't waste your time every year going back. But if it's been two or three years, um, go back and ask. It's, all they can say is no. So it's certainly not going to hurt you to ask. It's just you're not going to see like a big difference in the industry is I mean, we used to work with um, some amazing reps with the insurance companies, and we still do work with some amazing reps, but their ability to have the same kind of discretion to make big increases is not as much there as it used to be. I mean, this is kind of a different game now. So there's just not, you know, it used to be if you had a really low fee schedule for your area, then the insurance company reps would kind of go, yeah, this is pretty low. Let's get you up into a more reasonable range. And we would see some that would be bigger increases. There's just not as much of that now. So if they do anything, you're going to see a little bit more of kind of almost a cost of living increase kind of range. You're not going to be looking at, you know, huge increases in a lot of areas. Now, that's in general. There's always a case to be made if you are in an underserved area um, where they need providers. And a lot of this is just timing. You know, sometimes an insurance company last year did not negotiate, this year they are. So, you know, it's it's still good to just continue to keep that in a rotation with your practice where every couple of years you're checking back. Because um, you just don't know. It, in your area, things can change. Um, but there's not necessarily... Um, a lot that you're going to be able to do to make that increase bigger outside of how badly do they need you? That's right. the big thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I think if you're hearing this or listening to the podcast, number one is you got to know your data. You got to know where you are and yep. what's really going on. Then you have to create a plan. Now let's say Sandy, I do have a plan. Let's say I've been following you. I've been working with you. I'm like, okay, so now I'm at 50% PPO, you know, that might be one of the questions I have is how do I determine what percentage of PPO? Now you also changed my brain. You're like, don't think of it like that. It's procedure code. So yeah. I want to ask you about that. And then I also want to ask you, don't let me forget on this whole term scheduling out that kind of gets into a gray area. So let's go back to the first. I have so many questions. Let's go back to how do I determine how PPO, you know, participate, you know, how much I participate, how do I look at this data in a correct way? Do you have a thought on that? Well, this is pretty broad, but the way that a lot of times sort of a, almost, I guess I would call it a practice life cycle maybe goes is just often you do a startup, new practice, um, and usually those offices tend to go a little bit heavier PPO to start with, just to get people in the door. And then, you know, the thought is, let's build a good relationship with these people, let's give it two or three years, and then let's, you know, reevaluate along the way. So assuming, and not all practices, but that's, I would say, more typical. And then, you know, as time goes on, you see things like, okay, you know, you've got practice debt and student loan debt gradually being paid down over years. And then pretty soon you're debt free. And then you start to see, okay, now maybe you're more in the 40 to 50 year old range and you go, okay, I can step back now. And I don't necessarily have to be as busy as I used to be in order to cover all of my bases. And I remember that. I mean, I remember having three little kids and you know, being a couple years um, into a new practice. And I mean, I remember a lot of sleepless nights laying there thinking, okay, we got the supply bill due in three days and we got payroll in five days. And, you know, you're 
that's a real thing. You know, there's just with the cost of dental school now compared to where it used to be, you know, this is um, dental practice owners have to be more business oriented maybe than they did 20 or 30 years ago. You know, there's just a lot more at play here. So then you kind of get that end trend where you go, I, I just don't have to worry about that as much. And I have the ability to get out of some things that maybe I wouldn't have done five years ago. So the trends I see tend to be more geared towards where that dentist is at in their life as opposed to their practice. You know what I mean? It kind of trends right. with that more so. Um, and I do think COVID was um, a game changer for dentists in, a, in some other ways where that, I mean, nobody liked the whole, let's be forced to be shutting down our offices outside of our control. Nobody likes feeling out of control. But there are a lot of dentists who came out of that and said, I was able to reprioritize a few things in my personal life by force, maybe, but I still did it. And now I want my practice to look a little bit different. And so I'm definitely seeing more dentists say, OK, my end plan, maybe that I thought was for going to happen when I was 55. Now I'm 48 and I'm doing it now instead, that kind yeah. of thing. So I'm seeing that shift a little bit downward. Um, but that didn't really answer your question as far as percentages at all. And I don't have a great answer for that because I'm a really big kind of proponent of what do you want to do for your, what do you want your practice to look like? And how do we find a game plan that fits it? I mean, I know there's a lot of thought of there's one way to do things and everybody should be PPO and be efficient or everybody should be fee for service. And, you know, for me, I just feel like, whatever you as a dentist, the way you want your practice to look, just how do we best equip you to get there as opposed to finding the, you know, one plan fits all for everybody. So. Yeah. I love your answer. I totally, <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. And um, that is absolutely true. The coolest thing about this profession is you don't have to live by anybody's rules. You make the right. rules, you make the hours, yeah. you make the rules, you make the fees. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why people are like, well, why don't, you know, why isn't it going to be go like to medicine? Because right. we are not giving up that Absolutely. control ever, you know? So yes. um, yep. now I do, I have, and again, I love every minute I get with you. I do want to ask you about a gray area. I hear terms consistently like scheduling out. So when you have figured out you have a less desirable PPO that you're participating with, some yep. experts suggest you schedule out. What would you say? Because it gets into a kind of a gray area. What do we need to know about thinning mm -hmm. our practice with less desirables? Is there a way to do that? Does it go against the grains of the law? Like what what do we need to know? Mm -hmm. Well, I think the biggest indicator is if you've got a new patient calling and you can't get them in, then that's a problem. Right. And if you're saying, well, we can get you in, but my next opening is July 17th. Well, that doesn't do you any good because when you think about it, you've only got eight hours a day or however many hours a day you see patients to see patients. If you're booking out six months instead of two weeks, what is that gaining you? I mean, you can only see one day of patients at a time. So continuing to just book farther and farther and farther out, that doesn't get you anything other right. than just a continual backlog of people who are waiting to get in. And where I think a lot of dentists, um, can make a mistake is when you get that busy, your first thought is, how do I hire more people to take care of the load of patients who are trying to get in? And not that that's a bad idea, but what can happen is 
you're booking out, booking out, and you're like, I've got to get an associate. But before you do that, if you are able to see your numbers and if you look and go, you know what, we've got $300,000 of production a year and we're writing off over half of that amount. Okay, as soon as you hire an associate, now not only are you as the dentist taking a 50% hit, you're now paying somebody else out of pocket on top of the 50% hit that you're taking. So is there a case to be made to say, we would be better off instead of doing a million dollars worth of production, doing 800,000, but we knock out you know, $200,000 worth of PPOs where we're collecting our full fee for that. Because most patients have out-of-network benefits. I mean, it's not to say you're gonna keep all of your patients when you go out of network, but it's also not to say you're gonna lose all your patients when you go out of network. I mean, you're still, you know, if you could lose, you know, 50% of your patients and still collect exactly what you're collecting now, wouldn't you rather do that than book out further and further or hire more staff, which, I mean, let's be honest, most dentists, one of the hardest things that they deal with is the staffing side of things. I mean, for most dentists continuing to expand, it still may be a good idea. I'm not anti that, but we have to admit it brings another set of headaches and another set of cost with it. So is there sometimes where shrinking things a little bit and then when you get your reimbursement rates where you want them and you're happy with them and you're still too busy, then does it make sense to add an associate at that point? Because then you've got the level of reimbursement rates that it makes more sense to pay extra people to come in. So some thoughts, not that there's a right or wrong answer. Some people do amazingly well with PPO efficiency and lots of associates as well. But I, I do think that sometimes the first thought is how do we just hire more people when the first thought maybe should be, are we making what we should be making on the production we're already doing before we go that route? Brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah. And then once we determine that, I'll even go one layer deeper on this. Okay. Mm -hmm. So Sandy, I'm kind of in a sweet spot of where I want to be. Now I'm getting two types of calls, PPO less desirable and PPO that, or people, people that want to pay my full fee. Can I you know, schedule strategically where I have more mm -hmm. fee for service people come in because by law, if you read the fine print, because so the fine print says you have to treat every one of those patients with the same respect, but it doesn't mean I've got to flood them into my schedule. And again, I don't know the answer to this. You, you live in this world, but I get these questions all the time when I go to major meetings. Can I schedule the less desirables further out to add more fee for service? What do we need to know about that? Yeah, and I think you can um, certainly decide too. It, where's your hardest spot to fill? Is it one in the afternoon? Okay, well, maybe you, you have openings, but maybe the ones that are paying you less, you still have the same amount of openings for those patients, but maybe you use those to fill some spots that are a little bit harder to keep filled. And maybe those after school times are ones that, you know, you, again, same number of spots, but maybe you just are a little bit more strategic about how you place some of that. Yeah. Okay, cool, yeah. cool. Because I was just always yeah. curious about that. I think one of the important things is that there's no laws that tell you how to govern your time. You know, you can use your time however you want. And you, you always have to treat people with respect. Uh, in the same level yeah. of respect. But I think as any clinician, even if you're not in fee for, even if you're not in PPO, you still play the same game. How do I best use my time with the right, right. type of people to build what I want? And I think that's the important right. message. And I love your 
caution about before we expand, let's figure out where we are. Now, going back to that, the expansion thing. So again, let me propose another scenario that I hear. Sandy, I'm on this premier plan thing and we're doing pretty good. I like it all. And I'm going to bring in an associate or I'm a younger dentist and I'm going to buy a premier practice. I hear this all the time from young kids. I bought a premier practice and I say, you bought a premier practice. That does not mean you are on premier, true or false. Yeah, it depends. So Delta is a little bit different because their rules vary state by state. So the tricky part about Delta is you can't really just give a blanket answer because it really depends on what state you're in. And the thing you have to be very careful about is in some states, you can still be premier only, um, where in some states you cannot. So just to give a brief rundown of how this works, because this is really confusing um, to a lot of offices, understandably. But let's say that you are participating with Delta PPO. Okay, you still have a Delta Premier contract. So technically, you still have a Delta Premier fee schedule. It's just that when you take both Premier and PPO with it, Delta is almost always going to downgrade you to the lowest PPO rate. So in that case, you have a PPO, or sorry, you have a Premier fee schedule, but it's essentially irrelevant because they're just never going to pay you on it. So then the big question, this is really what you're asking is, in what cases can you not take the PPO and keep only that higher premier fee schedule instead. So in some states, you can still do that. Anybody can do it. You can just say, I just want to be premier only. I don't want to take PPO. Um, But in other states, you cannot. But the thing you want to be careful about is, number one, let's pretend like California, you cannot. Um, So if you, though, let's pretend you're a California doctor listening right now, and you remember that you signed your Delta contract back in 2010 when you first did a startup. Well, that was before they changed the rules in California. So even though the rule is no longer that you can move to Premier only, if your contract predates when that change was made, you have the old version of the contract and you still can drop PPO and move to Premier only. So if you have any questions about what's my situation, am I allowed to drop PPO and move to Premier only, get it in writing get it in writing from Delta, can I drop the PPO portion of my contract? Now, if you're though, let's say you're gonna buy a practice in California. So this is what you're talking about as far as, yeah, I bought something, but did I buy the same thing the previous owner has? And no, you are not. So if you're buying a practice in California, and California is probably the biggest state to watch out for this with, because in some states, like the spread between the PPO and premier fee schedule is very small. If you're in Washington state, it's about 4% usually. So in all honesty, in Washington state, who cares whether you take PPO or premier, if the difference is 4%, it's not make it or break it anyway. It's not going to make that much of a difference. In California, the differences are more like 30 plus percent. You know, you might be talking about a $700 crown versus a $1,200 crown. Like it's a huge difference between PPO and premier fees. So if you buy out a dentist who was premier only, then as soon as you buy, you automatically have to take PPO with it. And as soon as you take PPO with premier, they're going to pay you on the PPO rates. Now, you can, of course, always stay completely out of network with Delta. But just be careful if you're buying a practice, if you're doing a startup, like if you're doing a startup and you are premier only at an associate position, but they've changed the rules since you added, you still have to check the rules for your new startup because they're gonna be different tax ID numbers, potentially different rules. So the, and let me just cover this real quick because this is a really big topic about Delta. 
Let's say you're Delta PPO and you can move to Premier only. The first thing that most people say is, it doesn't matter. I don't have any Premier patients. So what good does it do me to move from PPO to Premier only because I don't have any Premier patients? And that's absolutely right. You can probably count on your fingers the number of true Premier policy holders that you have in your practice, meaning they're going to pay you on Premier rates no matter what. But that's not what you're looking for. What you're looking for is how would your PPO patients benefits work if they were to see a premier only dentist? So if you are PPO and you pull 10 of your largest employer groups and let's say they have the same percentage benefits with PPO or premier, well, if you drop the PPO part and you move to premier only, they're gonna say, pay you those percentages, but on the premier rates rather than the PPO rates. So just to clarify, you don't automatically dismiss going from PPO to Premier only if you have the option, because making that transition may not be as much of a deal as you're thinking it might be, because your PPO patients may still have very good benefits if they were to see a Premier only dentist. Yeah, so well said, Sandy. Uh, and I, I, again, I would just love to have you back again and again. I have about six more topics I want to cover <laughs> on shows. I want you to talk about your services, but before we do that, um, any last thoughts you have on, you know, current state of the union in participation? Well, I would just say to dentists out there, hang in there because dentistry is really an isolating profession. I mean, mm -hmm. thankfully there's people like you who are doing these, you know, ways to gather dentists who are like-minded to not feel so alone. But boy, with the past couple years of everything that's happened with the economy, it is pretty easy to feel, you know, a little down about getting all the pieces put together. And so I would just say, you know, hang in there. This is it, it's easy to feel like I'm the only one going through this. And we've got a little bit of time probably to climb out of some of these, you know, economic forces that are at play for a bit. Um, but just to remember, you know, most dentists are really doing a great job of doing everything they can to maximize, you know, what they can do, but just stay on top of it. But, you know, kind of keep the faith. It's a, been a rough couple of years and this industry has gotten a little crazy with all these agreements. So it's easy to feel like you're the only person who's lost with this insurance stuff. And I'm telling you, this is all we do all day long. This, this is it. We don't do billing, coding. We do nothing else with insurance but this. And we have a hard time keeping up with all the changes that are going on. So this is just not something anybody should think they're missing out on if they don't know all the ins and outs. It's something the insurance companies have made convoluted, not the dentist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One of the secrets to life is to surround yourself with great people who are great. Sure. And that is why we have Sandy in our lives. So Sandy, <laughs> you've done some amazing work for um, some dentists in the ACT dental community, but if I've never heard you before and this is resonate. How can you help me as a dentist? So how does it work? Yeah. So um, if it's something that you're like, hey, I like this idea, but I just don't want to have to deal with this myself. I'd rather have somebody guide me through it. Kind of what we do is like if you end up working with us, we have you send us your reports, fee schedules. We do an analysis to show let's take a look at the impact all your current fee schedules are having. And then we get offers from you know, either increases, things that you've already got in place now or new offers. And then I basically map out your strategy and say, okay, here's all your options. Now let's talk about what seems like a good fit, what doesn't. And then for any changes you make, you know, we're with you with the paperwork and support pieces through that. 
So yeah, if it's something, you know, that seems like I know I need to do this, I just need some a little bit of handholding and guidance to just kind of keep me moving through the process, then that's, you know, who we're a good fit with. And I think you've got our um, Facebook page. And, you know, we have a little form on our website, you just fill it out. And then it just, you know, has you give us your list of contracts. And then we will tell you, hey, do we think we're a good fit or not? And I think, you know, you know me well enough to know, there's a lot of times where I'll say, you know what, not that we're trying to turn down business, but I just don't think we're a good use of funds for you. I would rather see you use this towards something else because I just don't think we're going to be able to get you something more than you could do on your own. Um, so if it's really not something I think we can help you with, we're pretty upfront about that. And then, you know, if it's a good fit, then here we go. <laughs> yeah, I love that about you. And I've had people say, I called Sandy. She told me she couldn't take me on or couldn't work with me. I'm like, she's a straight shooter. She's going to tell you the truth. I will tell you one of my favorite stories, if you guys are still listening up to this boy. So I had uh, Sandy work with a doctor out West and he didn't change participation. He just switched from one plan to the next. And so, cause it was a better fit for his office. He sent me an email. He's like, okay, that saved me $42,000 just <laughs> with that one in like four days, that's how fast. So again, it's 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 really about making sure you got a clear path to where you want to yeah. be. And Sandy, we are just so grateful to have you be part of this community. So thanks for being on. You bet. It was fun to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, I'm not letting you out that easy. You're going to come back again <laughs> and again and again. So stick around while we say goodbye to everybody else. But uh, Thank you guys for listening to the Best Practices Show. Hey, if you enjoyed today, which I know you did, just do us a favor, hit the share button, share this with your friends, and keep sending us suggestions for what you want to see on the show. I'm lining them up. I'm going to have Sandy back if she agrees to it again and again and again. And send me the difficult questions, and I'll share them with her, and we'll get you know the answers straight from the experts. So, um, But I want to just thank you guys for listening, and uh, until you guys hear from us or see us next time, keep watching or keep listening to the Best practice the show. You guys enjoy your day. So there you have it. Another great episode. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Hey, and thank you for showing up. I just want to thank you for being here and sharing the good word with your friends. And if you're really enjoying the podcast, could you do me a favor? Could you go to wherever you consume the podcast and just give us a four or five star review? Here's what that does. It allows us to find other great people like you. I love this profession so much. I'm going to spend the rest of my professional life finding great information so that you can consume it and your friends can consume it so that you can create a better practice and a better life. So keep spreading the word and we will see you guys soon. Have a great day, everybody.